Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're fighting. No, I mean, we're not actually fighting. We're just talking about fighting. So Conor McGregor just announced his retirement. We'll see how serious that is. I've been boxing again and actually going to pro boxing matches. And probably most relevant to our actual podcast, we are both playing Street Fighter V. Many people have sort of asked us to play Street Fighter V, and it's finally happening. Rob, how did you get into this wonderful, amazing fighting game? So I've been getting increasingly curious about fighting games since like covering the esports beat. One of the things that, you know, is definitely growing as in terms of like audience share is, is fighting games. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a fast growing scene and you know, it wasn't that long ago. I think I was watching the NorCal regionals and I started to get really intensely into it. Uh, and, and part of that was, was because there were some, uh, there were there were some big surprises happening at that tournament. I guess there were there were a couple players that were uh, making making tournament runs that it almost seemed like they had no real business making. Right, mm, so there, yeah. there was old kind of like troll player uh, named Marn who ended up uh, you know as one of the top finishers both in Marvel versus Capcom and in Street Fighter, which which nobody was really expecting. But the other weird thing about about following like pro Street Fighter pro fighting games. Is that unlike every other game, every other esport where like people vanish, you know, if you, if you go away for a couple of years, you won't know anyone who's competing. You're basically. done. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting games are really weird in that <laughs> the, the people I was hearing about like 10 years ago are still around and still really good. Like, you know, Justin Wong and, and, and Daigo are, are still like among the very best. Uh, fighting game players in the world so you know like this is this is me right like if if you can give me like compelling figures and and a good tournament suddenly i'm kind of into a game as an esport and that made me curious about fighting games in general right because i haven't really played them seriously since uh since street fighter 2 on on snes which which wasn't even the the right way to play street fighter uh if i'm being, <laughs> if I'm being real honest uh but so I decided, you know, I, I was visiting a friend in North Carolina and I sort of expressed, I sort of expressed my, my, my vague interest in, in fighting games. And, and there are some genres where like people who are into them, if, if you express any interest at all, they will pounce, right? It's yes. like, oh yes, finally it's, it's ready to recruit. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like you hang out with a Bible salesman or something yep. and you like, you know, boy, I'm not sure I'm being spiritually fulfilled. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> This, this is kind of how it that's kind of how it felt. So the the moment I, I, I expressed this interest to my friends, they were they were immediately like putting uh, Gutex and, and Mike Ross on YouTube, which is this this really excellent video series of these these two fighting game pros uh, talking about talking with people from the scene about about fighting games. And from there, it was it was a very short leap to trying out Street Fighter Five, and uh, I was surprised. How much, a how much I enjoyed it. Uh, it's it's an incredibly satisfying game, uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But the other thing was I was stunned at how much easier it is to get into than the fighting games I was playing when I was a kid. Sure, sure, that makes sense. 
I found, uh, you know, I actually only just started playing it myself, and I've only played a little tiny bit of it kind of just today, sort of thinking about topics we were going to, you know, talk about. Um, but I, I kind of had the same experience where I was sort of like, I don't know, I'm probably going to hate this because I'm going to suck at it so much. And, you know, sort of went through the tutorial and started playing the single player. And I was like, hey, this is clicking and making sense. And I'm doing the things that I want to do with the controller. And it's actually sort of manifesting on the screen. And I'm shocked by this, especially after sort of my recent Dark Souls experience, where it you know took me 27 hours to kind of start to get it with the combat. Uh, but right away, I kind of felt like, okay, well, uh, clearly I'm not skilled at this, but I'm I'm getting it exactly like you're saying. Like it, it was actually fairly accessible compared to, you know, games I played when I was a kid. And my sort of history with fighting games is, I played a whole lot of Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Two. Um, I played a lot of Soul Calibur, believe it or not, in the sort of GameCube era. Um, I played a lot of the sort of Xbox original version of it and the GameCube version of it and had a lot of fun with it. I don't think I would consider myself skilled by any means, but I, I enjoyed it. And then I played a lot of Mortal Kombat X and the one that came after X, which I forget what it was called. The, were, the Mortal Kombat that really came good. out. Yeah, they were great. They were actually really great. Again, from a non-skilled sort of fighting game player's position, I had a lot of fun. I had so much fun with the most recent one for completely you know, bananas reasons. I actually thought the storyline was amazing and wonderful fun in the sort of uh, fast and furious kind of way. It was very earnest and fun. Um, but, you know, really sort of enjoyed the, the button mashy fighting, uh, you know, on my level. Um, so, you know, I, I'm very much like a fair weather fighting game fan, I guess you could say. Um, but I think the, I think the <laughs> yeah. Dark Souls comparison is, is really interesting there because one of the things I really adore about Street Fighter V is how badly it wants to bring you up to speed yes. on how to play fighting games well. <laughs> uh, it's it's very much the opposite of a game that's trying to obscure information or or catch you by surprise. And and maybe I don't know if if there's any old school people out there who that bothers, right? Because I know like once upon a time, part of being good at fighting games was was knowing all the secret combos, right? Yes. Like that was that yes. was a skill in itself, or at least a reason to go and, and, and pay too much money for strategy guides. But <laughs> exactly what happens in street fighter five and my God, like every, every game with serious competitive aspirations could, could really like could really benefit from something like this. Uh, street fighter five. Have you been to the training room at all? Yes. Just a little bit. Again, I've only sort of dabbled in the whole game, but I have, you know, sort of dipped my toe into the training room and I was like, oh, I'm coming back here. <laughs> yeah, because like it gives you a failure free space to just learn a character and try the moves. And it'll even have little like um, dance dance style button prompts to tell you how to like get through the combo you're trying and 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 actually trigger the attack right and you can program the ai uh if you want to get more sophisticated with it you can program the ai it can it could just stand there like a dummy uh you can turn it on at any time and, and have a normal fight but you can also tr have it do various like a, a set routine as well so basically you can have now a robot drill partner Yes. Uh, that you're playing this game with to specifically practice specifics, like to, to, to specifically practice situational fighting, right? So, like, you know, how can you block, um, 
you know, how, how can you block like Chun-Li's uh, kicks, right? Yeah. Like you can have the bot just, just take you through that again and again and again until you learn the, the rhythm and the pattern of, of making all those blocks. Uh, and that is an incredibly cool thing because this is a game, and, and, and I think it's very smart. I think they're aware of this. This is a game, this is a series with, you know, 20 years of history behind it. It's, it's, a, it's a long history. So how do you get people to catch up? How do you get people to understand what's actually fun about this game and what makes it cool? Because just flailing around and button mashing is fun for like five minutes. Yeah. But then you get bored and frustrated. It's always been me with fighting games. And here, within like, you know, the, the night I picked it up, my friend and I were having some pretty serious, uh, some pretty serious duels. Uh, and it was, it was really cool because, yeah, we were playing badly. <laughs> but we were playing. We were we were choosing tactics and attacks and like watching our spacing and distance and it felt like it felt like a damn fight. That's awesome. A street and yeah, fight, if you will. A street fight even. I mean that's that's pretty damn awesome. And I sort of you know, I'm going into this as, you know, I'm a boxer. I'm not like a great boxer, but that's what I do with my time. I, I train in boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but mostly boxing right now. And I sort of immediately a lot of things about playing this game made sense to me. And and it's, you know, this is such a super simplified way of looking at it, but but everything for me needs to kind of map Physically, in, in a game where I'm sort of, you know, when the physicality of performing certain actions is the game, you know, in a mm -hmm. fighting game, in a combat-heavy game, these things need to make sense to me. And Bloodborne did not make sense to me until I, until I started thinking of sort of uh, positioning and spacing um, in the combat. Um, immediately when I sort of went into the tutorial and went into the, you know, the, the little dojo area and uh, playing a little bit of the, the single-player Immediately, I was sort of like, okay, there's light, medium, and strong attacks. This maps exactly, basically, to jabbing versus throwing hooks and, and sort of light uppercuts versus throwing, like, my straight, like, my right hand straight punch mm -hmm. or, like, a really wound up uppercut. You know, if I if I totally twirl my shoulders and, and go for the kill with an uppercut. And it's like, oh, man, this makes sense. Okay, I know these buttons do this. This is like jabbing. These buttons do this. This is like doing hooks. And these this button kind of does this. And it was like this wonderful moment for me where it just made sense. And it, that happened within, you know, sort of a few minutes of just sort of playing around and, and just sort of, you know, hitting different buttons and, and figuring out the different, you know, the, the general layout of how you play this game. It was it was such a great moment because I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. I get it now. Not 100% by any means, but like. It was like unlocking, it was like a little key unlocking something in my brain. Like, this is why people like this. Okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised once I'd sort of figured out how things how things functioned. Uh, I was surprised how quickly I started really paying attention to little details, right? Like yeah. the exact spacing you're keeping between you and an opponent. You know, like if, like if you are too close and you're going to try to launch... Uh, one of one of Ryu's like spin kicks, uh, that that move has a wind up, and your opponent's going to see you doing it. They're going to see it coming, and if you're too close, they will cross that distance before you can trigger the attack, and you're going to get rocked because yes. you're going to be committed to that. You're you're committed to that animation. You're you know that your attack's going to be interrupted, and uh, you're not going to be able to react to what they're doing to you. And they're going to clean your clock and it's going to get real bad. Uh, and, and so like once you've had that realization, suddenly I'm like looking at every, I'm, I'm like, I started doing things not for 
attacking purposes, but just to maintain distance, right? Like, yeah. Like using the like, I, I think after after a few minutes, like you know, I wasn't using the uh, Hadouken to to attack really. I was just doing it to try to hold you know hold someone at bay, yeah, uh, you know, and keep them keep them at range while I figured out what my next what my next move was going to be. And that was a very different level than I've engaged with most fighting games on. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really kind of awesome when, when you start sort of feeling things out in that way and, and sort of feeling it as opposed to watching it. Because I was, at, at the very beginning, I was really distracted by, again, this is going to sound a little <laughs> reductive, but I was sort of distracted by sort of, okay, I'm watching two two characters here. And that's weird because I am one of them. Yes, I know and exactly this is weird. Yes. And I, I'm all uncomfortable by this. And then after a little while, I just sort of very naturally only watching the opponent character and only watching their sort of windups and only watching their animations for sort of their tells. And I was like, okay, this makes sense now. Like I'm aware of, of my fighter, you know, the person I'm controlling, but I'm not really paying that much attention to them so much as I'm paying attention to sort of, how I'm spacing myself, you know, sort of versus its other fighter. I kind of had to make that weird little adjustment in my brain of like, okay, I am this thing. So I don't need to worry too, too much about, you know, watching every little frame of my animation. That's just going to happen whether I like it or not. <laughs> now I just have to sort of focus on this other opponent. It was like a weird, you know, sort of 2D versus 3D way of thinking. But once it clicked, it clicked. And it was rad, <laughs> basically. The the other thing I really appreciate there. Uh, is that each of the fighters has such a distinctive fighting style and like fighting personality that you absolutely end up in this weird, there's this weird level of double think, right? Where yes. <laughs> on the one hand, it's you versus your opponent. On the other hand, it's your character versus theirs. And you almost have to think of it both as a competition between you and the person, you know, to your right or left. Yeah. <laughs> but also as, okay, I am, I am Chun-Li and and he's Dalsim, and what is what's what's Ch how does Chun Li like take down Dalsim? Right? What are they going to yes. try to do to each other? Because what you learn is like distance isn't the same for all the characters, right? They they have different speeds. Uh, there's stuff you can get away with as as uh, Ken that you that you can't get away with as Ryu, and sort of uh, having these moments of realization where it's like it reminded me a bit of when I was out there uh, when I'd be fencing. Right? Is that, yeah. you, that that first time like somebody sort of catches you off guard with how unbelievably fast they are, right? Like <laughs> you are at a range that you would have been safe with nine out of ten people that you were that you were competing against that tournament, but that tenth person is able to you know, they've just got an extra step that nobody else has. And once the, once that's happened to you, you have to respect it for the rest of that tournament. You have to yes. you have to just keep that filed away. They're like, okay, this distance is safe. Except if you're against this one person, they're going to burn you with it. And that that's really cool. And I, yeah. I love having that loving that love having that feeling in Street Fighter. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing, especially, you know, you as a fencer and me just sort of as a boxer. Like it's kind of amazing and intoxicating to be able to inhabit different bodies mm -hmm. in that way and inhabit completely like, okay, I'm I'm really small. I, I'm like five, four and a half and, you know, 125 pounds. That's what I fight at anyway. And like 
I'm never going to be a big hulking brawler, you know, but in in a game like this, I totally can. I can like try these totally different things on. I'm like pretty strong for my size and I'm pretty, you know, sort of uh, for my size, I'm a little bit of a brawler. So it's nice to be able to play a character who can just absolutely fly around and zip around and be like incredibly fast. And all of these things are really sort of intoxicating to me as a fighter because, man, it would be so cool if I could kind of like inhabit the skin of another, you know, kind of human and get in the boxing ring and actually see what that feels like. And this is clearly the next best thing that we have, you know, with <laughs> with human limitations and technology. And that's really incredible. And it's not something I appreciated until I actually, you know, was, was legitimately sparring and fighting and boxing. Like, it, it's something I never really thought about in fighting games until, you know, I, I kind of have this other experience to bear on it and I just it makes me appreciate it so much more like the fantasy of this is really kind of incredible and kind of a wonderful thing and it feels like the fidelity of that not that you know you can really speak to the fidelity of a, of a fantasy of inhabiting another body but it, it feels right in a lot of ways and and god that's really cool <laughs> yeah the feel of it's really incredible like the the, the combination of like God, I'm not even sure there is any haptic sort of feedback on, on the controller or whether the sound <laughs> effects are just so good that it feels that way, right? Like mm-hmm. every time you connect, like you you feel those you feel those punches, right? Yes. When you're when you are when you're when you're getting hammered or when when you're when you're uh like you know, flipping someone else, it feels really solid and and really good. And I I am consistently taken aback by like how both good that feels, but also how helpful that is as a player, right? Because it lets you sort of t- dial in the rhythms of the match uh, in a way that I never remember gelling with Street Fighter Two this way. Like sure. I don't like Street Fighter Two. They were they were they were sprite cartoons on on a, a you know on a little like eleven inch screen in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, uh, and none of it had any real feel. It was just like a bunch of cool badasses uh, doing doing weird attacks. But here it's like, my God, this is this is like some some real like you know Rocky or Cinderella Man uh, yeah. d- type type fighting sequences. I am curious. Um, does does a game like this? Is there any crossover between your skills that you've picked up in the ring in real life and in, in real training? Is there any crossover between those and then sort of the way you engage with a game like Street Fighter? I think there's some. I mean, the, the part that's the weirdest is that it sort of engages the upper body aspect to some degree, but none of the footwork and weaving and sort of the real, the real difficult part about boxing is not sort of punching another person. It's getting in the right position to land an attack, to land a punch, basically. You box so much more with your feet than your actual arms. And there's none of that in this game. You know, certainly you can go forward and back, but because it's not 3D, you're not I mean, I, I guess it would be possible somehow to to do footwork in a 2D game. I just I just don't know how that, that would be done. Mm-hmm. Or weaving in a 2D game. I'm sure it's possible, but it's not, you know, really traditionally been done. You can block, but, you know, it, at my sort of my boxing gym, we're not even, we don't block much. We're taught much more that, you know, you should weave instead because that'll get you actually in position, in a better position. You will, you don't need to block. You need to get out of the way. <laughs> That's kind of the idea. Um so, but the but the sort of upper body aspect, the sort of the the idea of landing an attack, does kind of feel right, and and the timing aspect absolutely feels right. I think the thing that 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 is kind of sold the most for me is is something you mentioned earlier on, but the sort of animations 
watching for tells, watching for wind up, mm-hmm. those feel almost identical. I mean, in terms of sort of what your brain is doing at the time, when you're in the ring, that is what you're looking for. You are absolutely like, okay, okay, that right is coming a little bit too close. You know, you're not actually legitimately thinking that because it's happening too fast, but right. you are watching for every little uh, nuance of sort of arm position and head position and sort of how they're moving. And you're absolutely doing the same exact thing in a game like this. So I think the watching of an opponent is not, you know, not a one-to-one, obviously, but it's it's the closest thing to, yeah, okay, this is how you really fight. And this is represented really well in this in this sort of way. So that part's really cool. Do you think Street Fighter stands out in any respect in in, in that regard? Like, uh, do you do you experience any of the same crossover when you when you're playing Mortal Kombat, or or is the way Street Fighter's tuned does that feel different for you? So it's kind of funny. Um, I've been sort of thinking about that myself, and I was such a beginner to boxing when mm-hmm. I played whatever, whatever X, whatever the last one was, you know, two years ago. Yeah. Um, I was really new to boxing. I had only just started at 29, actually, when I when I started boxing seriously. I had done it before, but not seriously by any means. Um, and so, like, I don't think I had the full sort of language of boxing yet. Uh, to be able to, to to kind of go after it, and and as a kid, I you know I'm thinking about this now, and I didn't even really learn the combos that well. I did button mashing, and you might find this hilarious, but I really liked those games when I was a kid because they were so colorful and weird, and I actually liked the goofy characters and all the the weird backgrounds and this ridiculous lore. Um, of Mortal Kombat and, and things like that. Uh, even even Soul Calibur. I mean, I was a young adult by the time, you know, Soul Calibur 3 was out. But I still was like, oh, I like this weird, bizarre world where there's these dominatrices and whatever. Is that really the plural to dominatrix? I suppose it is. I mean, it could be, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably, it's probably technically correct, but it sounds super, super it weird. It sounded really bizarre. That's why I had to stop myself. Anyway, um... Yeah, this is the first time I'm connecting with a game that feels like it's it's true to fighting in some way. Um, it really is the very first time. And and that might honestly be as much because I am much more advanced as a boxer now than than when I kind of got la- last got into a fighting game, I guess. So I have been sort of curious for the last uh, for the last year or so. Like, why fighting? <laughs> For me personally, yeah, because yeah, you you were always you were always the the queen of cardio, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> like you were all about endurance and and just general fitness, and then and then fighting. Uh, and I'm also wondering, like, because I never because I never heard any enthusiasm from you about like following the fights, right? Either, yeah. either boxing and MMA. I don't I don't remember that being like one of your things. So I, I'm I'm both wondering, uh, first of all, why'd you pick it up? And and second, have you ended up sort of turning into a convert uh to uh, to the pro scene? Yes and yes. <laughs> At least for the second part of that question. I sort of got into it, you know, I'd always been interested in it. And actually when I was a teenager I did jujitsu. I, I was like a purple belt in jujitsu and I and I always loved it and I always missed it. And I, I I had to stop doing it because I almost failed out of high school. My parents pulled me out of it. So it was kind of like this lost era of my life that yeah. I really loved and enjoyed, but never, you know, as an adult, never really picked it back up until I was grown. Um, and it's it's funny to me because my very first boxing class at my old boxing gym in San Francisco, um, my ex actually had signed me up because I always kind of was like, oh yeah, I think it'd be fun, you know, one of those things. And I just ended up falling completely madly, deeply in love with it. It also had to do with um, 
it's weird, but like I had been getting sick a lot sort of at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, just, uh, sort of understanding how much of that getting sick had to do with my anxiety and had to do with actual panic attacks. I thought there was something horribly wrong with me. I went to the ER, you know, I scared everybody half to death with how low low my heart rate was, but I was really scared something (laughs) was wrong with me. And it was like, no, you're just, you're just athletic and you have panic attacks and fighting, in some ways is the scariest thing you can do. Like, you know, I walk into a a ring and people literally just try to punch me out. Like they try to knock me out with their punches (laughs) and punch me in the face. Like it's scary. And in a lot of ways, it feels like I'm, I'm able to, to master my fear when I, when I do that. It is like the most extreme expression of mastering a fear and getting in there and getting it done and feeling very much, it's going to sound like the cheesiest thing, and I apologize in advance, but, like, it really does make me feel very, very alive and very in the moment, and it helps me live in the moment. Uh, with, you know, somebody with anxiety, you're always sort of living in the future or the past. You're always sort of obsessed with, with something that's not actually happening. But when I'm fighting, there is nothing else. I'm absolutely in the moment, and I'm operating on a level that feels really refreshing and really, really incredible to me. So I completely fell in love with it for, for all sorts of reasons like that. Um, and I'm also, I'm, I'm a pretty competitive person. I'm not like bloodthirsty the way that I think a lot of people might think of as fighters. I want to win and I get mad when I'm actually in the ring. Um, so I'm kind of a different person when I'm <laughs> literally fighting, but, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of things that really work for me, uh, in terms of boxing and BJJ. And I, I, I have taken an interest, in fact, in sort of pro fights. It's less, again, the same way I am with every sport where I just like to watch people who are physically yeah. gifted do the thing that they're great at. Like, I don't even, diving, golf, tennis, football. Uh, I'm obviously more interested in fighting than anything else because I actually know the mechanics of it and that's interesting and fun to me. And, you know, there's a few MMA fighters that I follow. I, you know, I really like Misha Tate. I liked Ronda Rousey until she made some sort of shitty comments. I still sort of like her as a fighter. I like Holly Holm. You know, I, I love the whole UFC bantamweight division for women. Uh, I think that's really exciting. There's a lot of fun stuff going on there. And it's it's bananas. You know, the title is turned around three times, or, or I guess technically. Yeah, to three different women in the last six months when it didn't move for years. Uh, that's really cool. I like watching boxing, even though I, I, again, I don't really follow any particular fighter. But in the last couple of weeks, I've gone to my first two um, actual, you know, pro-level or high-level amateur boxing matches. I went to a Golden Gloves fight last night, and I watched a woman win her 10th championship as a, the 165-pound woman. And it was just, like, this incredible feeling of, like, oh, my God, this, just the talent and the heart and the grit that kind of goes into boxing. It's 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 hard to describe, but I, I you know, clearly could go on for, for days about it. It's just, it's really something. It's really something special. And uh, something that, you know, a lot of people, you know, they saw the Manny Pacquiao and uh, what's his face? The total asshole oh, uh, Mayweather and, fight. Uh, Pacquiao and... Uh yeah, Mayweather, uh, the, the yeah, jerk. Mayweather, yeah, yeah um, they saw that fight and they were like, ooh, boxing's boring. And I'm like, I don't blame you, but go go watch an amateur fight. Like, well, go watch a high-level amateur fight and you will see just incredible heart and, and tenacity. And you will see one of the just greatest, purest expressions of, of sport. And it's... Yeah, it's there's nothing like it. I just get so excited talking about it. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know who doesn't have to worry about CTE? Who Chun doesn't? Lee. Oh, you're right. Chun-Li, Chun-Li is great. I mean, the only thing she needs to worry about is like maybe some leg bruises or something. She's, yeah. she's good otherwise. Yeah. 
That's certainly true. Well, I think that's, that means, yeah, of course, let's, let's move on to our mailbag. Let's talk about weekend correspondence in that case. So before we go into weekend correspondence, we're going to take a very short break and give a message from our sponsors. Hey, Rob, how many no scope 360 headshots did you get in honor of 420 this week? I didn't get any headshots, even with a scope. I just couldn't see where I was aiming. Oh my god, I bet it's because you're still wearing those ratty old eyeglasses. Why don't you just get new ones? Because I want I want glasses with a little bit of style, and in this new gig economy, I can only afford the unironic Buddy Holly glasses. Rob, you don't need Buddy Hollies. You need Warby Parkers! Warby Parker specializes in designer frames at affordable prices for people just like you in the gig economy or any economy. You can go to warbyparkertrial.com slash weekend and choose five frames that you like. Warby Parker will ship them to you for free, let you try them out for five days, and pick out what you like. They'll pay shipping on what you send back. I'll be headshotting noobs and putting together highlight reels in no time, and I'll look good doing it. Just go to warbyparkertrial.com slash weekend and follow the instructions on the website. Danielle, I just got the most amazing email about 100% all-natural tampons from a female friend of mine. Was it about Lola? Because I am pretty sure it was actually for me. Did you know the FDA doesn't require tampon brands to disclose a comprehensive ingredients list? I did know that, Rob. That's why I used... Fortunately, my friend told me about this amazing tampon brand, and I thought you'd want to hear. Have you heard of Lola? Yeah, I went to trymylola.com slash weekend, and I signed up... 100% all natural tampons directly to you with a simple customizable subscription. I know you probably hate making frantic trips to the drugstore to replace your tampons, but with Lola, you never need to worry about it again. They're made of all natural cotton, no bizarre additives or harmful chemicals. You should go to trymylola.com slash weekend. Your first two box order is usually $18, but it can be yours for just $9. Thanks, Rob, and thank your female friend for me. I'll be sure to go back to trymylola.com slash weekend. So our first email comes from Greg in Helsinki. Greg writes, I've been thinking about Easter eggs and games a lot recently because of the number of articles on various gaming sites, YouTube, and people's personal blogs that I've seen. Which makes me wonder, should game designers and artists stop including Easter eggs? Are they just referencing the same things again and again and again without doing anything new and interesting? What's the point of Easter eggs? To highlight how Baroque someone's knowledge of gaming history is? Have we reached peak saturation with Easter eggs? Why aren't the Easter eggs the fetch quest that fills so many sandbox games? Thanks and keep up the good form. We're gamer tired of the same old things. Greg and Helsinki. Wow. Um, well, I think Easter eggs can be really fun and really wonderful if they kind of have, um, a point to them and they actually sort of tell you something about the game. You know, I, I'm thinking immediately of sort of uh, the way some of this was done. I, maybe you wouldn't call them Easter eggs, but very well hidden sort of collectibles in uh, my favorite game ever, Psychonauts. The sort of mm-hmm. memories of someone, you know, people's very sort of deep hidden secret memories. That went well with the game's fiction. It told you about a character. It had, you know, it had a lot of of, of meaning for the game itself, as opposed to being sort of meta meaning like, hey, look at me, I'm in a game and you found me. 
And there are other cute little things like, you know, the way the cats were named in, in Bioshock 2, this sort of, you know, if you found Schrodinger in a frozen dead cat somewhere, like something like that, I think is cute and funny because it also sort of like, oh, it's a, it's a meta joke, but it's not like a pop culture annoying sort of reference. You know, it's not taking me out of the game. It's making me chuckle gently at sort of the, you know, something that kind of makes sense in the sort of sciencey world of this game. Um, but you're not wrong, Greg. I, I, you know, I certainly think that if an Easter egg is just sort of there to show how cool and pop culture referencey you are, that that is a little tired. <laughs> and, and the more they're exposed, the the more like you know, the the more, for instance, that you've got people going around like PR PR people going around like, oh well, here's here's where you find the Easter eggs. Maybe right. this is, maybe we will get a, another burst of articles of, uh, about this uh, out of out of the gaming sites. Uh, that stuff starts to feel a little manipulative, right? Uh, it's it, it doesn't feel like a cool little secret. It, it starts to feel more like a a requirement. Uh, and I, I do think like after a certain point, they can become a little bit like the uh, the Wilhelm scream. Right, yeah. Uh, where it you become acutely aware of the artifice involved in the game, and it's such an obvious like nod or inside joke that everyone knows now uh, that it just doesn't. It, it, it it's it's more disruptive than anything, right? Like before you knew about the Wilhelm scream, you probably didn't clock the fact that there was this goofy sound effect in a whole bunch of movies, right? Yeah. But once you did, you couldn't you couldn't unhear it, and you now immediately you notice it every time it it, it pops up. Uh, I kind of feel the same way about um about o four five one, sure, uh, in, sure, in immersive sims, right? Uh, I like at this point, I think everyone pretty much knows that that is uh. You know that's that's the that's the code that, that sort of unlocks everything in any game that is uh, sort of descended either directly or intellectually uh, from Looking Glass, and at this point I, I come across it, and, and there's times when it, when it feels like it's just a complete a completely undeserved attempt to associate yourself with with a a greater work, right? Uh, yeah. Like I have never felt more ambivalent about that Easter egg. Then when it popped up in, in Bioshock Infinite, uh, a game that had <laughs> basically mechanically stripped out every single trace of, of looking glass that it, yeah. that it possibly could. Uh, so I, I, I don't think, I, I don't think obviously like people shouldn't create Easter eggs. Uh, but I, I kind of, I kind of preferred my Easter eggs to be uh, free range organic yes. Easter eggs. Yes. Not these, not these factory <laughs> Easter eggs. <laughs> Uh, but, but bring me the ones that are made by like board artists or, or people just, you know, trying to find a, a little bit of enjoyment or humor in a, uh, in, in a long crunch or something like that, uh, yeah. rather than something that that's sort of meant maybe to, to be a little more, um, to be a little more self-interested. Yeah. Less marketing, more, you know, organically died <laughs> Easter eggs. Uh, so our next email comes from Scotty Doe. Hi, Weekenders. No doubt you are both aware of the recent controversy over the inclusion of a trans woman in the latest Baldur's Gate update. While I do not agree with the negative reaction to the inclusion of this character, some comments within this conversation gave me pause for thought. Some people have argued the position that this character is poorly implemented and lacked any nuance. That the inclusion of this character came across as tokenism. The trouble is that I find most game characters are presented superficially, reduced to a couple of defining characteristics at most. So, is including a minority character in a similarly superficial way tokenism? 
How does this type of tokenism differ from true diversity and representation? Is tokenism better or worse than exclusion? Is this type of tokenism bad if it still raises awareness and inclusion or different people? Of different people. Yeah, this is... Uh, <laughs> so the entire uh, topic of tokenism is something that I feel like is 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 clearly still up for debate uh, for a lot of people. And a lot of people feel a lot of different, very valid things uh, sort of about it. Uh, if we're speaking about sort of the, the the grand solution to all these things. The easy solution is always, hey, write a better character. You know, write somebody who it doesn't matter that they're trans or, or whatever it is. In this case, write something that comes from the heart that that makes sense. That was you know done with proper research or written you know by a person in that sort of in that uh, that had that life experience. Um, but but in terms of just purely, is it better or worse to include? Uh, sort of a, a character of any given, you know, sexuality, gender, gender identity, especially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can only tell you that for me growing up, it would have been incredible to see sort of queer characters, even if they weren't the greatest characters in the world, because I didn't see any, you know, sort of when I was very, very young, until I was in my teens, I had no idea that gay people existed. I had no clue until I was like 13 or 14. Um, and like I, I think something about that really sucks. And I think there's something to be said for characters that aren't bad. Now, this is this is completely not saying bad characters that are just sort of a, a walking stereotype or something, because those might do more damage than good. But sort of a bland stock kind of character. My completely, completely subjective personal opinion is I would personally rather have eh, or fine, or sort of bland representation than none at all. I would rather have none at all than bad representation, but something sort of uh, middling or sort of in the middle for some, for certain populations or for certain things that are just absolutely not seen. Uh, exposure means a lot. And this is sort of the thing I did my like graduate thesis on. <laughs> it was actually, I made a, a film. I, I went to film school and, and my sort of paper, my book that I had to write was all about sort of how, how very, very vanilla mainstream kinds of things like network TV, like Ellen uh, from, you know, Ellen DeGeneres and Will and, and uh, Will and Grace, how it, it did these totally bland things that we would not call great representation by any means today made such a difference for so many people. So that's where I stand on that. I certainly can't answer that about trans women in, in particular, but I can just answer that is sort of like you know from from my point of view there yeah i mean i think that that sums up most of my feelings i i think in general the solution is always write better characters yeah <laughs> and i i think that is that is the frustrating thing uh when when i come across a character that it feels like there's the, the character has no other purpose than to provide a shield of sorts for for the creators right like it's it's yeah. a way of like saying we're we're being inclusive and and representative without really having done the legwork yeah and that that kind of that that never sits quite quite well with me uh but yeah obviously if if the choice is between that and complete erasure uh then i you know, i I imagine a, a token, you know, it, it's a token. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a thing. Uh, it's it's better than it, it's better than than having your existence sort of uh, you know tacitly denied. Uh, at the same time, I think a a a 
I think really characters that that lean heavily on stereotypes can can do more harm than than good, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I think the way a lot of uh, African American actors were were used for sort of the majority of of film in America. Uh, was was not was was not really helpful to to anyone, right? Yes. Uh, and and at that point, what you, what you've got, you, you you don't have complete erasure, but you have misrepresentation, uh, and and that you know that's I, I think far worse. So I think you know bad character better that you not have a character of that kind at all. Yes. I think is yes. ten, tends to be tends to be my rule, uh, just because there's. There's people for whom this is going to inform their lens. Their, their, it's going to inform their view on the world, maybe more than it should. Yes. Uh, there's going to be people who maybe don't know any trans people or, or any people of a certain minority, and yeah. how the how those characters represented it begins to take on a great deal of import when you consider that this is this is how some people are going to broaden their 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 experience beyond what they've 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 experienced firsthand. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a difficult it, it's it's a difficult <laughs> difficult scenario, and uh, I, I I do think I, I do also sometimes worry that like identity politics can be so fraught that I would not be surprised if at times creators felt like it was too loaded to even address characters yeah. or groups like this because if you do it the least bit wrong you'll get killed for it yeah and that worries me a little bit as well uh because it it, it means that when, when you have you know if, if corporations given the given the choice between having a headache or not having a headache nine <laughs> times out of ten it will not it will decide to not have the headache uh and that might be crummy but i i do sometimes uh worry a little bit that a lot of creators will just you know, kind of look at look at the situation, and rather than sort of dig deep and and reach out to people who can speak to those experiences, will instead say, you know, it was never led us astray before. White A white people. guy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely true, and it and it sucks, and it's sad, and it it you know. I do think the sort of uh, Twitter obsessed, uh, Twitter obsessiveness, whatever, of, of sort of the way we talk about identity politics sometimes, I'm completely in agreement with you, does get so fraught that, yeah, people are just like, well, I won't go near it with a 10-foot pole. I've, I've heard that statement said before about, you know, not this in particular, but, you know, about things like this. And um, that sucks because I, I you know... God, I just wish uh, representation was better for trans women and trans men and, and just damn, just everybody, <laughs> you know, like I, I want that very badly. Um, I, I would take it as, as some sign of progress that, uh, you know, a game of this size is, you know, that, that those folks are, are trying. And the last I heard on this particular story was that they were going to spend some more time actually doing research and doing a yeah. better job with the character, which is great and awesome. And I, and trying I applaud to do that. Better is, yes. is always the, the correct response, right? Like, and, yes. I, and I didn't want to imply like that, you know, well, if 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 oppressed minorities complain too loudly, the the man's going to just not won't, just won't give them anything. How about that? Right, right. That, uh, that sucks. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm impressed the way this has been handled, at, at least insofar as okay, we we hear you. Um, we're going to we're going to try to do better and and make this character you know worthy. Uh, so that's you know that 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 that's that's all the good. 
Our next letter comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes, Your most recent episode about everybody's gone to the rapture left me feeling sad. As a fan of Stanley Parable and Undertale, I've always enjoyed clever writing over mechanics. But your discussion makes me think short game or story-based games have a long, dark road ahead. As you talked about Rapture, I felt my heart sink. The majority was about the walking. When Danielle asked if moving faster would have fixed the game, Rob agreed. You mentioned the story in passing, but kept returning to the gameplay. When Rob pointed out that the game rested on the writing, this did not sound like a good thing. In comics, there's a debate about whether writing or art is more important. You need both, but if you skimp on one, you add more of the other. When games become light on mechanics, I hoped for stronger, more engaging writing. But if these games don't land, nobody talks about their story problems. Instead, they get branded walking simulators, term I've only heard used as an insult. Love listening to you talk about shows like Fargo and Daredevil, but you didn't apply the same lens to Rapture. Why? Is this something ingrained in games because we're used to talking about mechanics? Worry over spoilers. Or was John Carmack right when he said story didn't matter as much as gameplay? Mix this in with your conclusion that games like That Dragon Cancer are a harsh gamble. It feels like a bad time to be a story game. In this climate, are story-heavy games screwed? Apologize for putting you on the spot. You two are strong voices in my life. And this topic hit a chord. Thank you. Hope you have a great weekend. Uh, yeah, Kevin, there's a lot there. Um, I'll just address that last part and, and then I uh, let's chat about the first part yeah in terms of uh our story-based games screwed that's not us not wanting story-based games i think i i speak for both of us when i say i love story-based games we both are very very into a sort of narrative and world building in games it's more a question of sort of in this current climate that is sort of overrun by a lot of smaller games that may be more story heavy, they're just having a harder time differentiating themselves. And we were, I, I believe we were talking more about sort of the business end of these things. Yes. A lot of folks who are making indie games, and this is sort of informed by the GDC panel, the Indie Apocalypse panel, uh, where a lot of folks were saying, hey, it's really hard to, to sort of strike out and make a story-based game right now because it doesn't do well with Let's Players. It doesn't necessarily show super well, and it doesn't have, you know, incredible replay value. So there's a lot of reasons why for a completely business point of view those are those are hard to market right now they are hard to sell right now so that's that's sort of that part but we we certainly we love our story in games and and rob i'll let you take the rest of the question yeah well i mean i I, yeah i i have no problem with the walking simulator i have no no problem with a game that's very light on on traditional gameplay like again one of the formative games for me is uh the last express uh, we did a three moves ahead episode on it uh, a couple years ago. Remains one of my favorite episodes. You should you should go look it up. Uh, Chris Remo was on it, uh, and it's, oh, yeah. we we discuss a lot that this idea that this is a game that is is brilliant without the player having almost any active agency whatsoever. That's not the issue. Uh, I think the reason I sort of the the reason I sort of said that having the game move at a faster pace in in rapture would have helped is that the enforced the, the pace that it enforces that it enforces that it imposes upon you uh sort of presumes a great deal about how much you will be affected by the environment that surrounds you uh and how much you'll sort of be on tender hooks uh waiting for that for that next bit of story and that didn't resonate with me as much. I started to find that 
in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, as gorgeous as it is, and it is a beautiful game, and the I would not have made it through without uh, the use of music and, and lighting in particular in that game to sort of uh, have this wonderfully evocative atmosphere. Um, that's that's really sort of what did keep me going. It wasn't the story. It was it was the fact the world was kind of a pleasant place to spend time, even though by the by the twentieth or thirtieth, uh, you know, English village house uh, that you <laughs> you've gone into uh, in in the you know I think it's the seventies uh, in 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 that game or early eighties uh, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've you've seen you you've seen pretty much the whole bag of tricks. Uh, there's not there's not that much more environmental storytelling you're you're going to encounter. Uh, it's just more of more of the same detritus uh, yeah. rearranged into different patterns because they've they've sort of run out of out of models. So okay, at that point the game rests on writing, and it didn't sound like a good thing in Rapture's case because I found the writing kind of off-putting. Yeah, uh, I thought the performances were very good, uh, but in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, you are you are you are bearing witness to these odd little stage plays, these these, these little these little scenes between ghosts uh, enacting a profoundly uh, mundane and I think cliche uh, sort of domestic uh, domestic drama, right? And the problem then is if I were watching that as a show, it would not have quite the same pacing problems, right? Because I'd just sort of be sitting there and the, the, the story would continue to advance and the scenes would, the scenes would advance and I would continue to, you know, I, I would, I would continue basically to, to stay with that story. Uh, here, the thing just unfolds at this, at this absolutely glacial pace because that's the speed at which you walk and then you're, and then when you encounter on your journey from point A to point B, what you encounter at point B is, uh, two little shimmery ghosts having yet another uh you know kind of parochial and, 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 and <laughs> this is not the not the word i i would necessarily choose but i'm, I'm really grasping at another one <laughs> there's there's lots of bitchiness in this game yeah, there's, totally. lots of, there's lots of like really like really nasty uh lots of really nasty slightly slightly mean uh people in the story and i don't require every character to be likable but when my reaction to almost everybody uh, you meet after the first act is to kind of start rooting for their annihilation, uh, <laughs> I, I think I think you do have a problem, yeah. right? Because this because ultimately everybody everybody's gone to the rapture is about closure for all these characters, and at that point you really you're relying a lot on my ability. Uh, on, uh, you're relying a lot on the idea that the audience is going to forge some sort of connection with those characters. And I really didn't, despite the fine performances. Uh, I just I, I thought their I thought their story was too boring. I thought their mm. I thought the stakes of their disagreements. I thought the reasons for it were were all fairly petty and stupid, and that made it very difficult to find any sort of meaning in sort of the denouement that the that the, that the game grants each of these characters, uh, despite. Despite the <laughs> despite the humans work put in by that soundtrack, uh, it just it just didn't land for me. So 
I think my problem, like the reason I the reason I didn't dig too much into this stuff is because it's difficult to talk about. Like if you if you if you talk about the the plot of Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which literally just came out on PC, uh, you're you're basically talking about everything that you're going to encounter in the game, and I, I don't feel entirely comfortable in delving into into that uh, when yeah. it comes to this game. So all I can do is start talking these generalities about like why I was kind of rooting for the for the gas bombs uh, <laughs> that, that, leveled that, that leveled that town at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's more than fair. Um, yeah, and, and I also sort of, I take a slight issue with the sort of idea of like, if you take, you know, if you have a little bit more story versus a little bit more mechanics, I don't know if there's, there's necessarily a way of doing that. Like, more story versus more mechanics. I guess you mean putting a little more love into the story and a little more love into the mechanic, you know, in, in sort of development time or in terms of development terms. But, um, yeah, I, I just think it's fair that like, I, I don't know. I, I love story-based games. That's, that's sort of one of the main reasons I play games is I like to be in these worlds and sort of often have these sort of quieter experiences. Um, it just doesn't mean the story is good, you know, yeah. as you're saying. So yeah, I think that's more than fair. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, to the, to the sort of mechanics, uh, story tension, like I, I kind of get, where that's coming from, where if, if you can't, if, if you can't sort of push as much as many mechanics or, or big game world, you, you can push, you can push story. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Uh, a lot of, a, a lot of developers, I think will tell you that creating narrative content is, is actually pretty hard uh, yeah. and, and actually pretty resource intensive. if You're going to do it right. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Like I think a lot of twine games uh, that sort of leaned heavily on story and writing ended up sucking because then it would feel like you're just sort of clicking through someone's excruciatingly slow paced blog post. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and at that point, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. loaded term again, doesn't feel like it's a real game. Feels like <laughs> you're just like clicking a button to turn the page. But a game that I think succeeds wildly in that format is uh, my uncle who works at Nintendo. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, which <laughs> if you pay attention to what it's doing is actually really pushing what's, what what twine can do it's 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 not as it's not as linear as it appears and the the sort of the the sort of logic and and the and the various tracks you can get on that game are are pretty well concealed so that even though it's it's a it's a fairly simple game in terms of the way like you know twine functions uh it's actually behaving according to some pretty complicated uh, logic and, and causality uh, that I think makes it really bear up under that scrutiny as, as a player. In addition to having some of the absolute like best and most evocative like writing and sound in, yes. in a game. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of this just seems to come down to like, hey, a really great creator will use whatever format they're using and they'll do a great job with it. And, you know, it's all, it's all sort of down to skill and talent and, and the quality of ideas and quality of execution. You could, you could do brilliantly with anything, literally anything. You could do brilliant things with a stick in the mud. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Our next email comes from Mike Danger, Elliot. Mike Danger on the forums. Nice. I was really hoping Danger was his middle name, but <laughs> it's just a forum handle. Uh, all right. Hi, Danielle and Rob. First, thanks for the great show. I've been really enjoying listening to you guys. The recent conversation about murdered soul suspect <laughs> gave some heft to a weird theory I first raised to a friend of mine a few years ago. We are in the age of AAA New England video games. <laughs> 2012. 
Assassin's Creed 3, Stabbing Redcoats in Colonial New England. 2013, The Last of Us, Shooting Cordyceps Zombies in Post-Apocalyptic Boston. 2014, Murdered Soul Suspect, Being a Ghost in Salem. 2015, Fallout 4, Shooting Radioactive Zombies in Post-Apocalyptic Boston. 2016, Quantum Break, Time Travel Shenanigans in a Fictionalized Boston. As the New England arm of the Idle Thumbs Media Empire... (laughs) Do you guys think there's a reason that people suddenly seem to be interested in the region, or am I just crazy? (laughs) I love this theory. I love that it's like, hey, there's something going on in Boston. There's something in the water in Boston. But I think more than anything, you know, it's sort of like a a cyclical thing. Like, okay. Or, Or maybe it's more that Boston just has fairly... Fairly unique architecture. Like you, you could pick Boston in sort of a lineup of of medium sized cities in America. Mm-hmm. It looks very distinctive. Obviously, there's you know sort of the colonial architecture. There's a lot of history there, a great deal of American history. So there's a lot of stuff. You know, there's sort of a lot of fat to chew on in terms of different themes and and looking distinctive. So those are probably the reasons. But I will have to say, we have not seen an as many games set in Salem as I sort of wish there were. I, I really do think Salem is one of the absolute coolest video game environments, especially in Murdered Soul Suspect. And given how much, you know, spooky, occult, you know, things we see in games, especially horror games, I, I'm almost surprised there are not more, um, you know, sort of uh, games in Salem. And I would say also on your list should be D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die, which is set in Boston with the world's just... Most uh, is interesting. That swe- is that a sweary game? It is a sweary game, and there oh, okay. are some fantastic Boston accents. And I don't know—not fantastic in terms of, uh, you know, actual high-quality Boston accents, but but wonderful Hollywood Boston accents. All right, so I have a couple. I I, I have I have a different theory. Uh, okay. Because I think I think Mike is absolutely right. I think I think Mike has noticed something that's real, and something that's meaningful. I think part of it is. Uh, some years ago, I think Boston started making a really aggressive attempt to get films to shoot in Boston. Oh, uh, yes. That's why there is a weird flurry of films uh, that, that were just randomly set in Boston, including a weird Bruce Willis like sci-fi movie. Yes. Like, body swapping. Like, why the hell was that in Boston? They filmed that on my street when I lived there, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just weird <laughs> stuff. But it was, it was because Boston was, was aggressively trying to recruit. Uh, sort of a, a film industry and, and largely succeeded. Like a lot of films ended up getting, getting shot here. Uh, it also helps that you have the rise of people like Dennis Lehane and, uh, and, you know, to an extent, I think this is, this is actually meaningful. Uh, Ben Affleck. Oh, yeah. Uh, sort of becoming more of a player in Hollywood because he sort of defaults to telling stories about, about Boston. Uh, and he's, he's made a couple of really good films here, uh, including the, the wildly underrated Gone Baby Gone. Oh, uh, my God. Should, yes. Everyone should check that out. That Absolutely. But here's the other reason I think there's this interest in Boston, both in film and to an extent in games. Uh, so, yes, games are kind of, kind of following the lead of film that they often do. Uh, here's a setting that's become popular. So let's explore it ourselves. I think the other thing that you have in Boston is it is one of an increasingly small number of places where you have a working class white culture that's distinctive from mainstream American culture. Yes. It's like yes. readily recognizable as distinctive from, from mainstream culture. And so I think there's, <laughs> there was this great, uh, there's this great sketch um, on uh 
Seth Meyers late night, I want to say. Mm, sure. Uh, where, uh, Boston Accent. It was a trailer for a fake film, Boston Accent. <laughs> and it's a joke about all these. It, 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 the gag is it's about all these movies that sort of find various ways of basically fetishizing to death uh, the, the, the Boston Accent <laughs> and the various forms and permutations it takes. But I think the other thing that the other thing that that fascination with the, with the accent uh, sort of betrays is also a fascination with sort of vanishing old blue collar American values. Sure. Uh, things that, things that are reassuring and, and powerful and remind people of a sense of like community that has, has largely been extinguished, I think, but the idea of it still, still holds a fascination and it's a way to sort of tap into that without necessarily engaging in minority issues. Uh, which, uh, you know, I think that's, I mean, that's another part of the appeal, right? Is that yeah. you can, if you're making, if you're, if you're making movies about, you know, poor Americans, uh, you know, that's, that's a group that, that doesn't necessarily look like the cast of friends. Yeah. But if you set it in Boston, you can kind of have your cake and, and eat it too, right? <laughs> it can be, it can be street, but it can still be very comfortable territory, uh, for, for audiences. I think you're absolutely right. I'm I'm convinced. Absolutely convinced. Our next email comes in from Nick Beers. Nick writes, I find that as of late, I've been experiencing anxiety when starting new games that I'm excited for. Specifically, Fallout 4 and Fire Emblem Fates Conquest, both of which I started the game hoping I wasn't specking my characters wrong and I was trying to decide the style of how I will play. This led me to agonize a little over pretty minute decisions. In contrast, when I first played Skyrim, I just played and the character kind of fell into place, changing from magic focus to a stealthy archer. I was wondering if either of you feel pressure to prepare and ensure you're making the right character. Oh my god. Uh, yes, but I do this over sort of everything in my life. Um, I, I have kind of gotten to this point where I can't get too excited about something because then I will worry that my, with my anxiety, I will ruin it for myself. I will have a panic attack or I will just overhype something and then it'll never live up to it and I'll be sad about it. So I, I do this too. I get so excited about something, you know, and oh my god, I, I would do this as a kid. I had a you know, I talked about this on the podcast once, but I totally had like a little fake flight suit that I, I would wear when I was playing Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. And I was so excited about it that I would get in my little pants that looked like a flight suit. Yeah. And it just, it's so ridiculous, honestly. But but yeah, I, I am so, 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 so sympathetic to this uh, because I too get just overly excited about things. And then I worry that I ruin them for myself. So I try not to... <laughs> I try to sort of inundate myself with other things so I don't get too excited about something, um, which is, you know, always easier in, in theory than in practice. Um, let me think of the last time I, I really did this where I just, oh my God, I just so overly got excited for a game. Um, it it might have been, God, it might have been with Mass Effect 3, I think, maybe. It was probably the last time I just got overly, overly excited and might have kind of gone overboard with it and gotten a little too obsessed with it and then felt a little disappointed because of that. Partially just because of what a giant surprise Mass Effect 2 was for me. Because mm -hmm. I played 2 before 1. I played 2, I fell 
madly in love with it. That might have been one of the last games, and we talked about this before too, one of the last games where I just felt that magic, that absolute magic feeling of this is this is heaven. This is why I play video games. I am in this world. This world is amazing. I'm doing cool things in it. Um, I played two, then I played one, then I played two again, uh, like twice, and then played three, you know, when three came out and felt, you know, a little disappointed. Not that three was a bad game by any yeah. means, but it was nowhere near sort of the, the revelation, you know, that, that two felt like for me. So I, I sympathize with you, my friend. And, and if, if you want any advice, it's just, God, try to, try to play things that distract you from it. And then, <laughs> and then kind of go in as, as, as sort of cold as you can with something. Yeah. Except you can absolutely get it wrong, and the game is ruined. No. Uh, well, but I totally, I totally have this problem. Uh, for instance, like I am so glad that I got pretty far into Mass Effect One, uh, like pretty deep into the uh, that that Arctic research facility. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Which is a long. That's pretty long far freaking in. Dungeon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and. I realized that I wasn't putting enough points into uh, persuasion, basically. And I was being forced to shoot my way out of situations that I could have talked my way out of. And then I was like, wait, that means like characters are dying that don't have to die. And I wonder how that would have played out. And I would have liked to have had the option to click on that button that was grayed out. So I restarted and went full like combat skills to hell with those. You, you're last in line and focus <laughs> like 100% of my efforts on being a, uh, being a chatty Cathy. And boy, am I sure glad I did because Mass Effect 1 ends with some pretty crucial decisions you make, uh, <laughs> you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the, the, the coolest character in the series. And if you, if you got it wrong, if you didn't, if you didn't prize persuasion highly enough, um, you're going to have to kill uh, your best friend, uh, basically, or a character who should be your best friend. Oh, if I like, so that's that, that, that situation kind of bothers me. Right. And going back and playing the old fallouts, I get complete analysis paralysis, trying to figure <laughs> out how I'm going to build these characters. Cause I know there are certain builds where I'm going to miss out on story. I'm going to miss out on cool, like conversations with characters that would have kind of been all the stuff that I love in games. And I kind of face this choice. I can either play a really charismatic character who's going to have all those interactions, but then the early game is going to be a nightmare yeah. because I can't <laughs> grind the early monsters, or I can become a slightly more combat-ready character, and then there's just going to be a lot of doors that I'll never be able to open, uh, both literally and conversationally. Yeah. And I think it's it's a hard thing, and I'm not... I don't know, man. I, I don't know if there is a great solution, right? Because I, I also kind of feel like being able to respec at will kind of cheapens the nature of a role-playing game a little bit. Yeah. So I, I just don't know. But I totally, I, I totally know the feeling. And I think in a lot of games, it's, it's entirely justified. I agree. And, and FOMO feels like it's, it's so much stronger in that genre than any other. Yeah. It's just, oh, my God. It's just, yeah. You didn't <laughs> it's, it's get rough. what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I want every awesome experience from this. <laughs> awesome. So I think it's time for us to move right into our weekend projects. Rob, are you reading or watching anything especially awesome? Uh, so lately, I wouldn't say it's been especially awesome, but I'm reading a book uh, called The Billionaire's Vinegar. Oh. Uh, which is sort of a 
it, it's about this this stash of Thomas Jefferson's wine, uh, or at least a stash <laughs> of wine that purports to be Thomas Jefferson's from his time in Paris uh, that goes on the international auctions market and ends up fetching just insanely high prices. And it's kind of an investigation both into whether or not the stuff was re- real, right? Like it, it sort of appeared out of nowhere. Uh, it was definitely old, but was it really Thomas Jefferson's <laughs> and why hadn't it surfaced before? All these questions were kind of left murky at the start of the tale. And so the, the story sort of proceeds along these these three levels. Uh, it's at once a tour of really high-end wine consumption and <laughs> sort of the growth of uh, wine aficionado uh let's call it, in, in America – and then it's also a discussion of, uh, you know, sort of high-end auctions, right? It's it's sort of a tour of how the, you know, what the what the what the uber wealthy uh, tend to bid on uh, for fun, right? What do they what do, what do they acquire for for leisure? Uh, and then it's also just a discussion of really old wine and and the science behind it and and where it comes from and and why it, uh, you know, what what is the process by which a wine becomes legendary or undrinkable swill. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an interest, it's an interesting story because it, it touches on a lot of, uh, weird little characters and a lot of weird little characters. And there's sort of this persistent threat of, um, like fraud and, and weird competition between, between all of these people, uh, that makes kind of a interesting drama. Oh, that's right. That sounds like a fascinating world, a little corner pocket of the world. I finished Codex, which is a book I sort of semi-recommended on this podcast a few episodes ago. And man, that book does not, it does not, uh, I don't know. I don't think I, it, it, I fully want to recommend it anymore. It didn't oh, end no. all that well. <laughs> we kind of, I kind of petered out on it a little bit, uh, towards the end. But then I started reading. I felt like it was some, t- it was time for some nonfiction. I've been reading so much fiction. Uh, and I picked up Gang Leader for a Day. Uh, the subtitle being A Rogue Sociologist Takes to the Streets. Um, so this book is kind of famous uh, because if you read Freakonomics, the sort of uh, chapter on uh, black market sort of sort of gang activity and, and drug sales and the sort of uh, structural, you know, business structure of gangs uh, was about this this man, uh, this uh, sociologist. His name is Sudhir Venkatesh, or Venkatesh rather. Um, and he, in 1989, was a sort of a, a graduate student at University of Chicago, and he wanted to study gangs and and uh, you know people who were disadvantaged, disadvantaged youths, and and sort of the whole sort of machinery, the whole machinery of not only gangs, but sort of how gangs fit into uh, working class neighborhoods or, or poor neighborhoods in Chicago, which is, you know, a city with, uh, you know, incredible <laughs> uh, disparity between sort of the wealthy and also across racial lines. Very, very, very uh, sort of hard racial lines, um, especially at the time, sort of in the late 80s, which was the boom of the, the sort of the height of sort of the crack cocaine uh, I guess you would call it an epidemic uh, in America. And so this guy, he's, he's you know, 22 or whatever, a young sociologist. He's a, he's a young grad student. And he decided he went to, like, the projects one day with a, literally with a clipboard saying, okay, can I ask you some questions? How, do you, how does it feel to be black and poor? Literally said this. Awesome. Uh, yeah, exactly. How and did that go? It, it didn't go great. 
Um, but but the gang's leader actually sort of took a liking to him. This this you know he's an Indian guy, and uh, yeah. you know this this sort of and is visibly clueless. Visibly, absolutely, utterly clueless. You know, college kid who's who's running around with this clipboard, and you know, sort of takes takes a shine to him, takes a shine to uh, a shine to suit here, and lets him hang out with the gang literally for like ten years. You know, and this is sort of his recollections, his his just writing about this, and and wanting to be a sociologist who doesn't just you know. Uh, as he grows sort of as, as a social scientist and as a human being who's, you know, less clueless uh, or has more of a clue, I suppose, uh, you know, it, it, he, he writes a lot about sociology as a science and wanting to really to live with people and understand people and write about people from a point of view of somebody who, who gives a shit, honestly, you know, who actually knows people as people and not just as numbers and statistics and that sort of thing. So it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read. Um, you know, there, there are parts of it where, you know, I'm not anywhere near done with the book. I'm only about a hundred pages in, um, and it's not a super long book and it's not, you know, the prose itself is very, you know, fairly pedestrian. He's just sort of writing, here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Um, which I appreciate actually quite a bit about the book. It's very, very readable and, and, and really interesting to read. And I'm having a lot of fun actually sort of reading it. You know, there are parts of it where I'm afraid that it reads like cultural tourism on some levels. Certainly this is, yeah. this is an outsider coming in. There's no question about it. Some of that is mitigated for me by the fact that this is a first generation American sort of writing this. So th there's a little part of this that is not like, okay, this is not an overly privileged white kid going into this. This is somebody who grew up Indian American and, yeah. and sort of feels like an outsider already. So it's not, it, it doesn't feel quite as gross perhaps as it could, which I don't know what that says about me. Do, should I not think that's gross or should I think that's gross? I don't know. Uh, that's worth unpacking some, someday, I suppose. Um, but it, it is a, a very well-written book, and it is very, very interesting and uh, certainly shows uh, this this world in, in a very, I, I wouldn't say sympathetic necessarily, but in a sort of a no-bullshit kind of way. Mm. Uh, you know, sort of going into a lot of the complications of the gang actually being very much at the same time a nuisance in the neighborhood as well as a positive force in the neighborhood as well as a problem in the neighborhood. It is all of these things. It goes into sort of how the gang actually does keep the peace in a lot of ways in this neighborhood and does actually help out where the police will never come into the neighborhood. They will never help anybody out, but the gang will actually offer protection to people and actually will attempt to right wrongs where they see a wrong and also still crack, you know, right on the yeah. corner. So it, they're doing all of these things and it's more complicated than, than, you know, any sort of media's depiction of what was going on at the time. So really, really fascinating. Uh, so far, it seems very well written and um, not without its problems, certainly. Uh, you could, I think, still criticize it for being cultural tourism, even though it doesn't feel as as gross as it possibly could. Uh, so there's a lot there. And I might touch in on this again when I sort of finish the book because it, it feels like a very, I don't know, I'm learning a lot. And, and I like the feeling that I'm learning a lot, <laughs> basically. Awesome. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you're enjoying the show, 
please, please, please do rate us on iTunes and do go ahead and tell people about us. Shout from the rooftops. Don't shout from the rooftops. Whisper from the rooftops. However you'd like to get the word out. It helps us so, so much. And actually went in and read a lot of our uh, iTunes reviews the other day and was just tickled pink by... Oh God, how by are we doing? Are we doing okay? Really, really well. People are saying really wonderful things about us and, and we appreciate that so, so much. So thank you for doing that if you've done it. And if you haven't, you know, consider writing us a review on iTunes. It really does help us out. So you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Cool. All right.